Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It's brought to you this week by ExpressVPN and Eero. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name's Jason Snell, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. We, uh, we, did, uh, we saw each other uh, again. We just keep seeing each other. It's like, uh, like a bad penny. You just can't get rid of it. Uh, I guess I'm the bad penny in this scenario. Anyway, we did the Relay <laughs> 5th Anniversary Show in San Francisco. It was very nice. You were, my, you were over at my house the night before. That was very lovely as well. And, uh, you know, and now we're back in our respective studios to talk about space. We are. And this is our first regular episode in several. So we did Apollo 11, then the field trip. So yeah. This was a uh, situation where, so I I keep an Apple Notes document of like links I may want to talk about in the show, and I opened it, and this is not an exaggeration, there were like 27 links in there. It's like, okay, we got to weed this out. Uh, I think we did a pretty good job. We got some mission updates. We have parking problems at the space station. There's some Pluto drama because we can't ever move past that. There's a SLS. I'm going to try to heal us. I'm going to try to heal us with the for the Pluto drama, and then I'm just going to tease now at the very end of the show. We're going to try out a new segment. Ooh, whether it will remain in future episodes or come back or never be heard from again, I don't know. But I'm going to I'm going to try something out, okay. and we'll see how it goes. Well, I'm I'm excited to get to that. Uh, but do you want to tell us about this uh, first pre-flight checklist item? I mean, not really. That's why I put uh, your initials yeah. next. <laughs> yeah, but this is a word that I will struggle to pronounce every time. Oh, I see. I can't do it. Uh, you got to walk me through uh, it. All right, all right, okay. You want to? You want to start over? <laughs> well, no. We're this is it's already in the show now. Oh no! People who listen to Liftoff are well acquainted with my ability to pronounce words over a certain number of letters. Why, yes, Stephen, we need to talk about the Indian spacecraft known as uh, Chandrayaan. Chandra, Chandra, blah. look, you, what you did to me. You've ruined me. It's Chandra, Chandra, Chandrayaan 2. The 2 is the part that I struggled with there. Chandrayaan 2. Chandrayaan. It's in my brain now. Chandrayaan 2. It's in orbit around the moon. And uh, it's going to try to land, which is awesome because not, you know, not that many things have landed on the moon. Mm-mm. In fact, if this lander uh, has its soft lunar landing as planned, it'll India will be number four after Russia, the U.S. and China. So a very small club. And we're going to talk yes. about uh, Israel's recent attempt that didn't didn't work out. Uh, so yeah. that could be number four. So this spacecraft, Sh- Chandran. Chandra. Y- Chandrayaan Chandrayaan 2 is uh, it's a two-part spacecraft which we should be familiar with this is how a lot of these things uh, work both in lunar space but also at Mars where you have an orbiter and then a lander that detaches and goes down so they are still joined they are in a polar orbit so they've been sending back images of the moon's north pole and then areas around the southern pole which of course is where NASA is looking for uh, the Artemis missions around the south pole and the orbiter will actually stay in this path for a year or so, but the lander is scheduled to go down in just about two weeks and attempt a soft landing near the south pole of the moon. And again, if this is successful, putting India into a very small uh, club of Russia, U.S., and China of having a soft landing, a controlled landing on the moon. So there are other mm-hmm. uh, vehicles that, you know, we've talked about some on this program and others out there that have hard impacts. This is a, a soft landing, sure. controlled landing, where you can do science after you land and you're not blown into a, a million little pieces. Yeah, that's sorry, sorry, Israel for parachute, but that's what happened. Parachute didn't alert. make it down. It did not. Didn't make it down there. No. Well, uh, it didn't make it down. Yeah. Just way too fast. Well, that's true. Just it went yeah. down too fast. Yeah. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. So we will follow uh, up on this. Uh, the images that are being sent back and being shared by uh, the Indian Space Agency are breathtaking, as you would imagine, and parts of the moon that you know. Uh, I think. A bunch of us, especially with Apollo 50 going on, are real familiar with sort of that central band around the moon. But, you know, seeing the pole, the polar areas are something that a lot of us don't you – know, I'm not super familiar with this. And they're getting images of the, of the far side of the moon as well. So uh, this is going to be an exciting mission to follow. Yeah, very cool. And, you Chandra know, Ron. lots of people talking about the moon. And uh, we'll be talking about uh, Chandrayaan 2 as well. I'll get yeah. it right eventually. Let's let's move on to something that is uh, a little bit easier for us to pronounce. Although, I, you know, we could prove that wrong right now. We do that. 
<laughs> it is Europa Clipper. Yes. And you may have heard about this because this is the mission where there was a congressman who was really into Europa, and he was on the committee, and he funded this, a guy from Houston, and so obviously representing space interests, but he his imagination was captured by Europa, and so he would always fund uh, the Europa mission and continue to fund it, even when NASA didn't want it, that he would fund it. That was John Culberson, who was voted out of office last November. Mm-hmm. But John Culberson lives. I mean, he does. You don't die when you're voted out of office. But he, he, his spirit, I mean, he's an actual guy. He's not dead. Again, John Culberson's fine. (laughs) John Culberson's okay. Yes. But his legacy, there, his legacy in Congress is this uh, Europa Clipper mission, and it's going to happen. NASA has said now, this is the news part, not the silly part about John Culberson, who is fine. it is moving forward. They have given the instructions to complete the design and build the spacecraft. So it's going to happen. There was a question after Culberson left, like, well, what what's going to happen to his pet mission? But it is still a good mission. It's far along. Uh, they've been planning it, um, and they're gonna they're gonna. This is like the final okay, is my understanding. That like any any last questions, like, are we really doing this? The answer is yes. They're going to send this mission. To Jupiter, it is going to be analyzing Jupiter's moon Europa, which is a big ice ball that has a large liquid ocean beneath it. And NASA is planning uh, a launch in 2023, but uh, I, I guess it could be as early as 2023, but their their baseline commitment is 2025 for launch. And uh, we need to talk about some paperwork issues with the Europa Clipper. Mm. This is actually really fascinating. I have a link in the show notes to an article on Scientific American about this. The Clipper is the, according to this article, and I, I, it seems to be accurate, the first and only space mission to be to have its launch vehicle specified in the congressional bill paying for it. Yeah, yeah. It's l- legally, it must launch no later than twenty twenty three. What rocket, Jason? On- on the SLS. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is you know, we talk a lot about where space policy and politics intersect. And this may be the biggest example of it we've spoken about in a long time. So to get people on board, uh, Culberson had to work with various members in Congress, uh, including our friend Richard Shelby. We don't know him, but Richard Shelby no. is the senator from Alabama course, home to Marshall Space Flight Center, where much of the work towards SLS is happening. And Culberson needed these key players on board. And so it came to pass that the SLS is legally required to be the launch vehicle, according to the appropriations bill. Uh, The bill also says it should launch no later than 2023. Yeah. Which, again, NASA is saying its commitment is 2025, but they're, they're targeting for as early as 23. This is not like Brian Stein is going to be arrested outside of NASA if they don't do this, but wow, there's well probably not. But they come to his office. They're not going to yeah. not outside. They're going to come to his office and take him away. Take him away, boys. He launched <laughs> on the wrong rocket. <laughs> but uh, so a couple of things are going to need to happen here. Um, NASA is looking towards Congress to update the language in the bill as time goes on, and more is known about the timetables of both. Europa Clipper and the SLS programs. So you have two programs that have to meet at a single point for this to yeah. happen. And it's it's not hard to understand why this could be problematic, right? We have all the SLS stuff. This would be the third SLS rocket built. Uh, a reminder, the SLS, not reusable. In fact, when I was writing this, uh, prepping and, and reading and stuff, I was like, oh, it'll be the third SLS rocket. And my mind said, why are they reusing? And then I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm so... My default, Jason, has become that rockets are reusable, which is mm-hmm. wild. Uh, but uh, the SLS isn't. So this would be the third one built, um, assumedly. And uh, in May, NASA's Office of Inspector General reported that the SLS is unlikely to be available for the Europa Clipper mission as early as 2023. And in its 2019 budget, NASA had language encouraging the completion of the Clipper again by 2025. And critically, to launch it on a commercial vehicle like the Falcon Heavy, which would save the taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars. So Mm -hmm. this is going to play out over the next few years as the Europa Clipper 
spacecraft is built and assembled, and as the SLS program kind of runs in parallel, will they be at a point where they can join in 23, 24, 25, or will something change and they'll be able to put this up on a Falcon Heavy? Uh, time will tell, but I, for one, am just excited that the Europa Clipper is happening. It's such a fascinating mission. Yeah. These ice ball We've moons t- with oceans, like, that's the place to look for signs of life in the outer solar system. Yeah, we've been talking about it for a while, and humanity has been talking about it for decades now, the idea that maybe the most interesting place in the solar system to look for life is in these icy moons. And Europa has been target number one for a long time. We now have Enceladus around Saturn. That's another good target. And there are other targets, too. Even Pluto is thought to have a a water ocean um, beneath its ice. So there are lots of water oceans out there that we didn't really think about before a few decades ago. Um, The Europa captured our imagination, and here we Mm -hmm. are, a mission that uh, is not, my understanding, we'll we'll have to do a deep dive when we get closer, Um, not going in orbit around Europa, it's still going to be in orbit around Jupiter, but it's going to make a bunch of passes of Europa, and its science is focused on Europa. Um, But it's a a cool mission, I'm glad it's going to happen, and I'll also say that this item in the pre-flight checklist is almost like great foreshadowing for other stuff in our episode because a lot of the story of space right now, and we'll cover more of it in this episode, is about the political dynamics, especially involving NASA stuff, right? Political dynamics. Bridenstine, former congressman, now NASA administrator. Uh, you've got Culberson leaving and so the the uh, Democrats in charge of the committees now, where Culberson, the Republican, would have been in charge before, and also he got voted out of office. You've got Shelby from Alabama. You've got the power dynamic between Alabama, where uh, Marshall is, and the uh, Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. And all of this stuff is really playing out right now. Um, so there, this this is the first time we're going to touch on it in this episode, but there are there are more to come. Mm-hmm. This is really a trend right now in in the dynamics of the kind of politics of space. And we are always ones to celebrate outer solar system exploration. Sure. We, I mean, it, it's great. I'm very excited about that. Um, that part of it is... Uh, is 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 fantastic. Remember, we had that uh, when we had Emily Lactawala on a couple uh, her second appearance. Um, we talked to her a little bit about the pause in solar system exploration. Like, where are the next probes coming from? And here's a great one. Like, Europa Clipper is an outer solar system planetary mission. Fantastic. Very excited. All right, we need to talk about parking problems. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know what it's hard to park when you're a kid you're learning how to drive you got a parallel park and stuff but parking's not easy Mm-mm. parking can be hard sometimes parking. you get it wrong and you have to try again yeah that is the story over the last uh several days at the international space station as it turns out <laughs> so last week there was a soyuz launch uh, uncrewed so a little background on this particular uh launch it is a a test flight of the revised soyuz booster the Soyuz 2.1A. In reading about this, it seems like uh, the big change is they've updated to a digital flight control system, replacing the older analog system. The Soyuz booster is quite old, and they just continually make it better. Uh, This will allow for larger cargo fairings to be used in the future. They were an issue with wider fairings that the analog control system couldn't keep up with the updated dynamic pressure and aerodynamics of a a larger, wider fairing, and so this new system will allow them to do that. So you're not going to put crew on this on this launch, clearly. Uh, so an uncrewed uh, Soyuz capsule at the top. Uh, inside, we're going to well, we're going to talk about part of its cargo because part of it's super interesting. But about 1,400 pounds of supplies, food, clothing, experiments, etc., for the the crew of six, which are currently aboard the space station. And it was supposed to dock on August 24th. And these are automated dockings with the Soyuz spacecraft. So something like the um, uh, the, the Dragon, the SpaceX capsule, uh, those sort of have to be plucked with the arm and then they're, they're, they're brought over. But the Soyuz is all automated through a system called KERS. And there was an issue with this uh, docking that the spacecraft, as it was approaching the space station, made some unexpected adjustments to its flight pattern, which, of course, is a big red flag. They abort it. Uh, it was a rest period for the American astronauts. They're woken up by the ground saying, hey, there's this going on. We need to make sure that you're around in case we need you. And uh, it, it turns out that they could 
put that Soyuz as sort of trailing behind the space station for a couple of days uh, while they uh, while they work this out. And it is um, it's unclear at this point what exactly the failure is with the automated system. It does seem to be on the side of the International Space Station. So it could be something with the docking port or with the radar. Uh, the Russian space agency is, is looking into that. But uh, so that's sort of an open item f- for this. Um, so to move forward on the 25th, three of the six crew members aboard loaded into one of the already docked Soyuz modules and moved it to the failing port. And that required a manual docking procedure, which you can do when you have crew on board. And so they were able to dock successfully and safely uh, opening up a good automated docking port. And now that uncrewed Soyuz is, is safe and sound uh, docked to the ISS. There are now three Soyuz capsules uh, at the station, and there was actually a, a Dragon, SpaceX Dragon capsule, that was actually released just today, bringing uh, experiments and material home from the space station. So a busy time around the space station and not a great time to have an automated docking system uh, going haywire. Yeah, you know, sometimes you have a party at your house and and you want to park cars in the driveway, but you got to move cars out in order to put other cars in, and it gets complicated. That's like what they did here, right? Like, like well, well, we'll move this one over there, and then you can come in here, um, which is fascinating. I had no idea that they had all these issues where they could do the manual docking procedure and move that capsule and then do another coordinated thing. It's uh, it's tricky. It's tricky up there. But uh, it's something to something to watch, and also I'm fascinated by the idea of like trying to upgrade the flight control systems. That, that you know these systems do need to advance over time, and uh, that you you've got to just put it to get you you got to try it. Like you can't not you can't wait for the next space station. I guess is what I'm saying, right? So you've got to try this stuff, but it doesn't always work right. So let's talk a little bit about was what was on board that Soyuz. So we have to talk about. Everyone's newest friend, Skybot F850, which Uh-oh. seems like a menacing name for a robot. Like, I'm just going to say it. It's not, it's not a friendly robot name, like Johnny, you know. I mean, Sky, Skybot could be fun. It seems threatening. Um, there is a, a link to a tweet that you have to go watch of this robot you know, you're thinking you're thinking Skybot is scary because it's like Skynet from the Terminator. But I'm not. I'm sure this robot is. Oh God, it looks just like the Terminator. Mm-hmm. It can also drive a car <laughs> and shoot a gun. So, wow, the pictures of it. It's like looking at its hands. Like I'm alive. I'm alive. Kill all humans. It's very upsetting, Jason. <laughs> wow. Um, this is, I mean, we we saw some robots when we were at at Johnson Space Center, but they were not uh, humanoid like this. This is uh, wild. Yeah, yeah. So go just go look at that tweet. Watch the video in the tweet. Um, it's really spectacular. This robot is amazing. What it can do. It's it's got hmm. lots of articulation in its hands and arms. There's video of it driving a car. There's video of it shooting a firearm. Neither of which are probably super relevant to the space station. But yeah, uh, but the the idea that you could use it as a as a uh, a proxy for a human. Yes. That you've got a person in a VR suit. Um, with with sensors all over their their hands and 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 their body, and mm-hmm. they're able to be mirrored by the robot. So that's that's the application here: is you can send the robot someplace that a human can't go, and let it do things where uh, that are controlled by a human. It's uh, it's a good idea. It's a great idea, and it it would open up all types of work at the International Space Station. Inside and outside that, you know, mm-hmm. could be too dangerous for crew. Um, so for the next couple of weeks, this will be uh, sort of tested uh, at the space station and then sent home in the Soyuz capsule here in, in just a couple of weeks, like early September. And uh, in her article about this on The Verge, Lauren Grush does talk about some of the the other robotic missions that have taken place. Uh, you mentioned the ones that we saw when we were in Houston and uh, – like Robonaut and others. Robonaut, unfortunately, uh, had to be returned to Earth last year for repairs. Uh, but Robonaut 2 will be arriving shortly after Skybot F-850 will be leaving. So they, they won't be hanging out at the space station. It's probably good to keep your oh, well. robots, uh, you know, you don't want them to be hanging out after hours. Maybe, right? that could also, space is space. limited. Maybe they only have like one robot closet. Maybe. <laughs> it's like 
only one at a time. <laughs> I think we're going to see more of this. I think for all the reasons that you mentioned, and as this technology gets better, I fully expect that we will see both space agencies and private companies make a bigger move towards robotics, uh, low Earth orbit and beyond. Yeah, telepresence is, I mean, you need to be close enough, ideally, for, you know, fairly quick round trip of, of radio signals, but you can get take these things in places. Like, imagine having the robot out on the outside of the ISS so that if they need to adjust something, rather than doing a, uh, you know, putting two astronauts in spacesuits and having them go out through an airlock and all of that, they could just have an astronaut step into the VR gear and turn on the robot and go fix whatever they need. It's a huge improvement mm-hmm. in, in efficiency and safety. So um, it, it definitely is a way forward. You promised, I, I believe your word was healing. So. Healing. Pluto healing. We're going we're gonna to heal the rift. So it's 13 years since uh, Pluto was killed by Mike Brown and company. Uh, Pluto's fine, by the way. <laughs> Also not dead. Pluto's fine. It's where, where Culberson is. Uh, but uh, yeah, Culberson is on Pluto. He says, I got here first. <laughs> first man on Pluto. So 13 years. Uh, what And what happened is not that Pluto was killed so much as that Eris was discovered. And Eris is a dwarf planet. It is very like Pluto. And it, it is far out. Um, it is slightly more massive than Pluto. And they were unsure about how big it is. It turns out that Pluto is larger in diameter than Eris, but Eris is more massive. Um, And when we talk about size, I thought it would be worth mentioning. Eris is the ninth most massive object uh, to revolve around the sun. Ninth most massive. So uh, it's not small i mean it's small but it's not it's not teeny tiny it it's it's right up there it's the 17th most massive object period in the solar system because there are a bunch of things like moons mm-hmm. that don't revolve around the sun they revolve around the planet and of course the sun itself is the most massive because it's huge so um but anyway so eris is is big it's right there it's neck and neck with pluto like if it's 17th i think pluto is 18th most massive and i think that it's one down on uh, from pluto in terms of its uh, diameter. So they are uh, they are very similar objects. And what this did, if you don't remember what happened 13 years ago, is the discoverers of Eris sort of uh, called the question of the astronomical community and even the educational community and said, well, I guess this, if Pluto is a planet, this is also a planet. So we have 10 planets now, which opened a huge can of worms because the the real issue was if Pluto is a planet, we know so much now about the Kuiper Belt. We know so much about these objects. More, you know, there's much more to learn, but we know way more than we ever did. We know there are a lot of these things that are like Pluto. Pluto is not a one-off, and right. Pluto was the ninth planet. But it's sort of like, okay, it can't be. It can't be the ninth planet. It could be. It could be ninth in a group that is much larger. Or that we could, or we could exclude them and say there are eight planets, but we can't say there are nine planets and only Pluto gets to be in that club because Eris is essentially Pluto. That was the big thing. Now, yeah, the International Astronomical Union came up with this kind of bad definition of what a planet was. That is still people scowl about it and complain about it. Um, somebody asked on the anniversary, uh, asked NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine how he felt, and he said, "Well, I think Pluto's definitely a planet," um, and. You know, there's back and forth. There's like, like, like really, there's some shade being thrown on Twitter as it has been for the last many years between like Alan Stern and the whole New Horizons team who had a spacecraft going to Pluto when this whole thing happened. And they're obviously very proud of what they've done. And they should be. Pluto is a fascinating world. Um, and uh, and Mike Brown and and <laughs> whose Twitter handle is Pluto Killer. Um, and. My healing is going to be that there are all these hot takes that have come out about Pluto. And I I think I've said this before here, but I'm just going to say it again, which is I think we can all get along because the issue is not, is Pluto a planet? The issue is, how do you define a planet? And I think as long as you want to include Pluto along with other things like Eris as planets, great. It's going to be a big number. It's going to be a lot larger number, and it's going to be kind of hazy what exactly the number is. But we could do that. Or you can say, well, they're interesting worlds, because saying it's not a planet, a major planet, doesn't mean it's not interesting. But 
uh, you could you could exclude it and say it's not one of the major bodies of the solar system, which are these eight, uh, the four giants and the four terrestrial planets. Okay, great. You can do that too. The only problem I have is if there's somebody out there who I think would basically be trolling us at this point and saying, no, there are, there are only nine planets and Pluto is one of them, because that's the, that's the thing that doesn't make any sense. And I think everybody from Mike Brown uh, to Alan Stern would agree that Pluto is part of a group of outer solar system bodies like Eris that are interesting and should be explored, but are different from the inner uh, solar system terrestrial planets, different from the giants. And therefore, nine is a bad number to count things in our solar system. So that I feel like that's where we've we've landed. I think there's a lot less controversy about that now, although it still comes up with things like a reporter asking Jim Bridenstine about it. Um, but I, I feel better about it. The definition of a planet is still kind of like hazy, but it's always going to be a little bit because it's going to be where do you draw the line? Do you draw the line at eight? Do you draw the line at... 15 or something you know Mm -hmm. however many of the smaller bodies you throw in there but the most important thing is that teaching school kids that there are nine major objects orbiting the sun that changed 13 years ago and that was right because that's the wrong number and that doesn't mean pluto needs to be disowned but it needs to be that Pluto needs to be placed in the right context with the other stuff that we know is like Pluto that's also really interesting. And that even, you know, New Horizons, that their second target was another smaller object out there. Like, those objects are interesting. They're not, you know, Pluto's not the only one. So that's my, I'm trying to, I'm just saying, we can all get along. You can call Pluto a planet if you like. You just have to accept that it's not the only one. That it's not nine of nine. It's, it could be nine of some other larger number. That's fine. Right. I mean, we, like, when we were in school learning that, it was based on information we had at the time, but now we know a lot more. And yeah, Pluto time... was named as a planet because we thought it was bigger originally, and it was Planet X, and by the time they found out it was smaller, it was kind of too late, and we didn't know about any others, and so it, it you know, it had its time. I'm sure this will be settled until, uh, you know, Planet Nine shows up. Yeah. That's right. that's mm-hmm. yeah. That'll that'll be extra confusing then. That that'll be fun. Hey, Stephen, um, did anything blow up in Texas for the SpaceX Starhopper test? Not yesterday, but maybe today. So <laughs> SpaceX will be they're in the process. They tried on Monday the twenty sixth, but they actually cut it off at uh, basically at t minus zero. This is the Starhopper vehicle we've seen. They had a couple of tethered test over the last several weeks. This is going to be a 150 meter test where it will go up and then land back on the ground, hopefully safely in South Texas, a SpaceX test site there. Uh, it's, it is a bigger jump than its 20 meter test that went before it, but all this is in service of testing uh, the Raptor engine that SpaceX has been developing for years now, you know, building the pieces they need for their, their next launch vehicle. This is the vehicle's last test flight. So this is the you know, Starhopper. You know, it's a. Uh, it looks like a water tank with a rocket motor at the end of it. It's uh, this will be the last one, and then they'll be moving towards uh, suborbital test of larger prototypes. So just you know, again, systematically building up towards the real deal. I think what's so interesting about this is that for past vehicles. These sorts of tests were not streamed live on YouTube, right? Like they did this with the Falcon 9. Other, I mean, countless other launch companies have developed rockets or are developing rockets. It's just rare that we get to see it happen in real time. So, like uh, this call off at T minus zero when it didn't ignite, that's just part of this process. It doesn't mean this vehicle has a problem, it's just they're testing it. And uh, I, I find it interesting that SpaceX is doing it out in the open. They do. It seems like lots and lots out in the open and maybe too much, some people would argue. But it's kind of fun to to watch along as this company works on their their next-gen vehicle. So this could launch the afternoon this episode goes up or sometime later this week. They will get it right and, and launch it when they believe that it is ready to go. It, it is fun to 
have it be live, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're watching rocket testing live on the internet, which is kind of fun. I do think, I, I feel bad a little bit for the people who are out there in Texas who have been told like they need to go outside of their homes in case there's an explosion that shatters the glass and blows the glass into their homes. Like, eh, that's not so great. But, you know, that's, uh, I guess, life when you live next to a, a space testing facility. They have like $100 million in liability insurance for this. So if something yeah. happens, they'll make people... Yeah. Like people oh home. yeah, yeah. They just—they're just you know. You should go out, stand outside. <laughs> That's just for safety. Just stand yeah. outside, which I, is counterintuitive, but they're afraid that shattered glass is going to blow into homes if there's an explosion. Anyway, uh, we uh, will talk about it when it happens, mm -hmm. but it hasn't happened yet because they didn't do it yesterday. All right, let's take our first break and thank our sponsor, ExpressVPN. You may think that nobody wants your online data or to snoop on your activity. But if you browse the web without anything to protect your privacy, you risk just that. Hackers, ad companies, and others could be collecting your data. And it happens to everybody, and that's why I recommend ExpressVPN. It runs in the background of your computer, phone, or tablet. It encrypts your data and hides your public IP address. You just download the app and click to connect, and then you're protected. ExpressVPN was rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar, and they're using a new cutting-edge technology called Trusted Server to make sure there's no logs of what you're doing online. It costs less than $7 a month and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. I've spent most of the last six weeks traveling on the road, multiple states, and I'm using ExpressVPN anytime I go out. I have it on my phone, on my laptop, and my iPad, and it works great on the Mac. It's a simple menu bar application. I can click to connect. On iOS, it uses all of the built-in VPN stuff. So you can just turn the VPN on in the settings app just the way you would expect it to work. And it lets me browse while I'm on the road with peace of mind. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash liftoff. That's expressvpn.com slash liftoff for three months free with a one-year package. Take back your online privacy today by going to expressvpn.com slash liftoff. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right, Jason, it is time for the SLS segment, a space launch system segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. SLS segment. And today we're really focusing on the E in segment, Engineering achievements. <laughs> oh. Because uh, there's some news. So Boeing and NASA have signed off on the engine section element of the first SLS core stage. So if you picture the SLS, it's in the chapter art of the podcast. If you're listening to where you can look at your phone right now, the, the main middle section, you have the, the RS-25 shuttle motors at the bottom. Uh, they are in what is called the engine section. That's what we're talking about. And then up above it is the core stage. Which is basically fuel tanks and things to hold fuel tanks together, right? Like it's a flying, it's a flying gas can, as all rockets are. And uh, the news is, is that that engine section is now complete. Uh, so this is where the motors mount, all the interfacing from the fuel systems uh, down into the motors. All of that is in this section. It also includes what they're calling the boat tail, which are flared panels to direct the heat and energy of the motors away from the rest of the stacks to protect the rocket from uh, from all that's going on during launch. And that's all ready to go and ready to be mated to the rest of the core stage. This is just the perfect example of the SLS program in my mind. Initially, in the original planning, the core stage was all one thing. So from... The RS-25s up to where it meets the upper stage, the, the inner stage, it was all the core stage, right? It's all one thing. And uh, this, the, at some point, they decided, hey, we're going to separate the two in the way that we think and talk about them, and we're going to build what was kind of referred to as the four-fifths of the core stage, and then this bottom, much more complex engine section. The rest of it, the rest of the four-fifths core stage has been done since the spring. I think we spoke about it then. Uh, actually, when it was done, it's been sitting there waiting for the engine section to catch up. And uh, and now that's done. So that's sort of the news. And now they have to be mated. Uh, so the core stage, the four-fifths of the core stage and the engine section can can be united. And uh, that this is where the 
change in plans gets a little interesting. The original plan was to do all of this vertically, but they can't do that. And so they, they the four-fifths section is on its side, and the engine section is sitting upright on t- a test stand. And they have to basically use cranes to tip over the engine stage and then made it horizontally to the core stage. And that's all underway. They plan on having that done by the end of the year. And uh, so while I sort of quibble with the the moving goalpost here of what we call finished at what time, <laughs> there's no doubt this is a, a, another huge step in the right direction of getting SLS complete. Uh, after this, the core stage will, will be put on a barge and floated to Stennis for the green run test firing, which we spoke about several episodes ago now which is a full-length burn of the RS-25s, the full, I think it's eight minutes or so, of the launch sequence. And there was talk, if you remember, about them skipping that test. NASA said, no, we need to do it. And so this core is destined for that when uh, when it's all mated. And again, it should be mated and everything ready to go uh, by the end of the year. So, you know, hopefully we'll be seeing a green run test firing sometime early uh, you know, maybe in the spring of 2020. So uh, progress is definitely moving forward, even if how we define progress is a little squishy at times. It's a little squishy. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It can be. Like, I, I just, I think it's interesting that all of this is um, a progress report. Like, mm-hmm. we know you know <laughs> we that that this stuff has been delayed. So we're going to try to communicate more clearly when we move forward, which is is kind of funny. But that's where we are. There's a second SLS. There'll be many more SLS rockets coming probably. But uh-huh. uh, the rocket for Artemis II, which will be the first crewed mission of the Artemis program, will send a crew of astronauts in the Orion capsule to the moon and back. No, not landing. It's a flyby. Uh that booster and all of its uh, parts, that's a long way off. But we have a progress report for this rocket as well. So uh, Northrop Grumman builds the solid rocket boosters on the side of the SLS. Again, think about the space shuttle, those solid rocket boosters on the side. These are upgraded, taller versions of the same thing. It's an additional segment. And the set of them for Artemis II are, have now been cast. And what that means is they are filled with the propellant. So this is different than the liquid fuel used in the core stage where that is that is loaded on as close to launch as possible, right? Because it boils off in the Florida heat and it's extremely dangerous and things can go wrong. So that is filled up and then you go. The solid rocket boosters, that material is more or less inert. It It, it is dangerous in the sense that once it is set off, you can't stop it. But it is not something that just sitting on a shelf is going to combust or rupture. And so these are done way in advance. This rocket is not going to launch for several years, probably 2022, maybe. Um, but uh, the solid rocket boosters have been cast and will be ready to go whenever the rest of the rocket is ready. Check back soon or okay, not so soon. All right. It is funny to think that the hardware that's going to take people around the moon again is exists. Mm-hmm. It's being worked on. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I was reading this and I was like, oh, this seems late. And then I reread the headline. Like, oh, Artemis two. Yes, <laughs> we're we're yeah. moving forward. So uh, yeah, you can't just like build one and fire it off and then go. Okay, what do we do now? I guess we right. build another one. Like mm-hmm. there, there's a, an assembly and, line. Yeah, and, and my understanding is there, there are plenty of other components for Artemis two underway. You know, but Artemis One until that's complete, that's obviously the focus. And something like this core stage we spoke about a second ago, there's not a second one of those yet. But a lot of the groundwork is being laid. All those vendors in all 50 states are hard at work uh, getting getting their their various things together. So yeah, it will be a rolling assembly. And if it's anything like, let's skip the shuttle and go back further. If it's anything like the Saturn the Saturn program. That's several Saturn rockets being built at the same time with overlapping schedules. And I imagine that's where NASA and Boeing want to be with the SLS. And hopefully once the first couple are done, if this continues to be a viable launch vehicle, then they'll get in that place where they've kind of got one ready when they need it. And you're not stuck with something like the Europa Clipper, 
ready to launch, but nothing to put it on. That That's a situation no one wants to be in, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. Rocket parts. Rockets, how do they work? They It's complicated, and it takes a long time to build them. Mm-hmm. It's, there's a lot of hard engineering. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. uh, those solid solid rocket boosters, I mean, they're, they're serious equipment. So it's a maximum thrust of 3.6 million pounds. And like the shuttle, they're responsible for the majority of the thrust at liftoff. Some 80% of the thrust to leave the pad is from the solid rocket boosters. They are extremely powerful launch vehicles. And, uh, you know, they had issues with, obviously, with Challenger, but outside of Challenger, relatively straightforward to operate, right? You you light them and that's it, but they're pretty simple. And they've clearly wanted to step back into that reliability and kind of their previous understanding when designing SLS to, to use them here. They are bigger, but, uh, you know, it would be... Uh, very similar to how the shuttle took off. You know, the bulk right. of that work is being done by these things. Yeah. 2022, when the Artemis II launches, we can think back about to this episode and be like, okay. oh, yes. I remember when they were newly cast. Yeah. I'll be thinking about that when I watch those, uh, the SRBs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. You want to tell us about our second sponsor? Sure. This episode is also brought to you by Eero. Eero is really a game changer when it comes to getting internet from anywhere in your house. There's always, if you're like me, a room, a corner of a room, a part of your backyard, whatever it is, where you can't get a reliable internet connection. You find yourself like waving your iPad around or moving to another another place in the house in order to get that download or whatever. It's really annoying. Um, buffering your favorite videos. It's the worst. So Eero solves this by blanketing your entire home with fast and reliable Wi-Fi, so you constantly have a strong signal wherever you need it. It's easy to set up. It takes just minutes. Could not be easier. I've done this in my house. Super easy. Plug it straight into your modem or router box. You can manage it from a super simple app. Let's you do things like pause the Wi-Fi when you're eating dinner. If you want to like shut off all the devices, you can do that. Gets alerts if devices are trying to join your network. You can see what is connected, which is really useful. Um, And it fixed all those Wi-Fi problems that annoy you. There are no more dead spots, no more buffering. You're getting coverage everywhere. Like I said, super easy for me to set this up. And my Wi-Fi coverage in my house went from being sporadic and in parts to being um, just a blanket. Just it's covered. I've got internet. I don't even think about it anymore, to be honest, except when I'm talking about it here. It's just I have internet everywhere. It's super easy. So get your internet in your house fixed as soon as tomorrow by going to eero.com slash liftoff and entering code liftoff at checkout. You'll get free overnight shipping with your order. That's E-E-R-O, E-E-R-O dot com slash liftoff, code liftoff at checkout. You'll get your Eero delivered with free overnight shipping. You got to use that URL to get the offer, eero.com slash liftoff and code liftoff at checkout. Thank you to Eero for supporting Liftoff and all of Relay FM. So, Artemis is a lot more than just the SLS, of course. There's lunar hardware that's needed. There's politics. There's the crew. There's probably an inflatable or two because there always is now. Uh, so so what else is going on in the Artemis universe? Well, uh, hearkening back to what we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast, uh, there was an announcement that was made by NASA that Marshall Spice, Space Flight Center in Alabama is going to take the lead in designing the human lunar lander program for Artemis. Um, and this is interesting because, of course, Johnson Space Center handled that and all other human spacecraft for Apollo. And this caused a little bit of a hubbub where people in Houston were upset that Johnson Space Center was not being given the job of taking care of the lunar lander. Um, There is a a really good article on, on Ars Technica that we'll link to about how this is a political issue for Jim Bridenstine because um, you can get, the senators from Alabama on your side by doing this, but you're angering the senators from Texas. And of course, there's so much other space stuff going on in Texas that you hope that ultimately he will be able to smooth things over and balance things out. But it is, uh, it is a political, it is a real political minefield that he's trying to pick his way through by doing something like this. 
I read it when this news came out as a hedge against if the SLS gets killed down the road. Mm. That so much of the effort going on at Marshall is about the SLS and that what Breitenstein's announcement does is sort of stick some human spaceflight components there so that there's another major program that they're working on that is an SLS because um, the, if they if they do end up killing SLS at some point, my impression is that would be really devastating for Marshall. It, it's so interesting because Breitenstein, of course, came from Congress, right? And I remember yes. people, including us, had our reservations about that. And I think for the most part, I've actually been impressed with the way that he's handled the agency. But this feels like something he should be better at than yeah. he always is. Yeah, but then again, you know, maybe maybe it's not fair. I, I don't know. I no, I think the perception was that this is you know he is the last person who should be making people in Congress angry at NASA, right? But I don't know. I wonder. He obviously knows that there's going to be fallout by doing something like this, and maybe he figures that um, he knows he's going to get beat up by Ted Cruz, senator from Texas, when he announces this thing. He did on Twitter and elsewhere get beat up by Ted Cruz about it. But maybe he knows that in the end, um, th- those guys in Texas will have to make noise about this, but that they know also about how much other stuff is going on in Texas for the space program. And they, uh, in the end, it'll all get smooth- smoothed over. I would hope that Bridenstine is making that political calculation, is thinking a few moves ahead here about something like this. But um, it is fascinating to see that there was definitely some outcry, and it's a, uh, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a big thing because it is, it is something that I think as a point of pride that uh, Johnson Space Center felt like it, it, it owned lunar landers, and in this case, that lunar lander program is going to be at uh, at Marshall in Alabama instead. Wonder how much NASA's legacy hurts them here. Like you said, Houston, maybe just assumed that they would have it because they had it 50 years ago. And like, is that the right way to think about it? Or is Brian Stein willing to look at where the agency is today and make the best decisions for today's climate? Like, it feels like this is one of those things that maybe NASA's history, as amazing as it is, could be holding the agency back or like putting it in a pigeonhole that doesn't necessarily need to be in. Yeah. I think that's I think that's right. You've got the weight of history behind you of like, well, this is what happened 50 years ago. It's like, well, right. it's not 50 years ago. Right. I don't uh, know. I've got a grab I've got a grab bag of other Artemis stuff that I should probably throw in here. Okay. Um because I don't know where else to put it. Uh there's a, a a link we'll put in the show notes. Uh that's just a, it's a funny piece of speculation. They've been talking about Artemis having uh, the ultimate goal of having among other things the first woman on the moon. Um, there is an International Business Times story that uh, quotes Jim Bridenstine again. He's all over this episode about um, a student asked him if he if he thought there might be an all woman crew on Artemis, and he said we have considered it, and it wouldn't surprise me if what if that's what we did. We could have a crew of two women going to the moon within five years. It's interesting. Um, I don't think Artemis is going to be an all-female program, but I think this is, um, you know, I like it from a perspective of promoting women in spaceflight. Mm-hmm. I think it's also an interesting hook for publicity to say this is a first, right? Like, what, what, what have have we not had? And we have not had a woman on the moon because all of the Apollo astronauts were men. So having them use that as part of the story, like this, will be a a, a first to have that. Um, you know, they're always thinking of public relations and marketing and promoting NASA as well. So anyway, that was just an interesting little little note that he didn't. Not only did he not rule it out, he said that uh, they have considered it and it, and and that they might do it. Yeah, I think that'd be awesome. Yeah, I agree. I also wanted to throw out a link. Uh, there's an arts, Ars Technica story about um, Newt Gingrich, former House Speaker. What year is it? I know, I know. Well, the idea here is he he is proposing, um, and Bridenstine has said he doesn't oppose the idea of doing some uh, some more prizes, like you know, like the X Prize kind mm-hmm. of thing, sure. where you put out some prizes for being the first company to do X on the moon, 
and that that would be a way to motivate some commercial partners to advance their uh, their strategies. And I, I just think, I think it's interesting. Part of me thinks that's good at a certain level when you want to uh, you want to kind of stir up the grassroots, but on another level, it's the equivalent of asking professionals to work for free in a mm-hmm. contest in, mm-hmm. a, in in the hope that one of them will get compensated, but everybody else won't. Um, I, I don't like that part of it, but you know, I, I do think that with so much, one way to spur some innovation in space is probably to offer prizes and let it be open to whoever wants to try to solve that problem the fastest. I think that could be uh, that could be good. So it's out there as a possibility. Yeah. And I think if you're going to be back at the moon by 2024, you have to consider all reasonable <laughs> plans, right? Like, all options. Yeah. Because it's an, it's an ambitious goal. And while these things, I, I totally agree with everything you said. In fact, I, that's how I tend to feel about it too. Like, oh, you're uh, maybe a lot of people doing a lot of work for nothing or for very little, or you're right. creating a, a situation or environment where, People may cut corners to be first and all that's bad, but it could lead, I see the upside too, right? It could lead to some really interesting solutions from people who wouldn't be in the game otherwise. And that is exciting to to have new ideas and, and have research and have development done by people who aren't at companies like Boeing or, you know, these other, you know, big players that we all know. So that's, that's exciting too. And I can't imagine... NASA doing this for anything crazy critical, especially for that 2024 deadline, but for things maybe a little bit past that, maybe there is room for this under the right circumstances. I'm certainly not opposed to it, but I I think I agree with you that you got to do it exactly the right way or it comes across pretty, pretty gross. Oh, I've got one other little Artemis related item, which is like sort of. So Sierra Nevada, which is the corporation that you might know from the Dream Chaser, which is the little uh, space shuttle like spacecraft that is working on being a, uh, a cargo supplier for the International Space Station. They have another NASA contract, which is uh, basically come up with gateway modules. Now, we know that the at least in the short term because of the rush to get to the moon in the time frame given by the administration, gateway has sort of been uh decontented down to uh, <laughs> a, a kind of a dongle like a right. you know, the it's going to be skinny gateway. Yeah, skinny gateway, exactly right. It's uh it's it's going to have less than they thought. It's going to be less of a space station and more of a way station, I guess. I could put it that way. Hey-o. Um but there are these still these programs going on from from when they thought that Gateway would be bigger because it could be bigger in the future, and it also leads to technology that could also potentially be used uh, to send people to Mars and to go in orbit around Mars. So what happened here is um, Sierra Nevada has shown off its module for Gateway, which is an in space habitat, and guess what? It's inflatable. It's an inflatable hab, so similar to the the beam module that that has been done by Bigelow Aerospace at the International Space Station, and Bigelow wants to do space hotels, and they want to do big modules that are inflatable as well. Sierra Nevada has a full-scale prototype of an inflatable habitat for Gateway. It's more than eight meters long. It's got an eight-meter diameter. It's got an internal volume of 300 cubic meters, which is all told about a third the size of the International Space Station. Whoa. So it's big. It is Uh, big. That's the nice thing about inflatables is that they can be small in a fairing and then expand Mm -hmm. when you get... Uh, out there into space. So that's the that's really the selling point is that if if these inflatables can be shown to be safe and to last after they've been expanded because obviously they're not they're made of of uh, fabric instead of rigid metal, um, you could end up with a whole lot of volume which was would be good at a space station, would be good at the lunar gateway, and it could potentially be good um in on a Mars mission because you've got to have a, people uh, in space on the Mars mission for a long time as well. And uh, you could have this be one of the things that travels to Mars, let's say. So it's, uh, you know, unclear where this stuff goes from here. They've obviously fulfilled this part of their contract to show this habitat off and uh, and work on this. But as people who listen to this podcast know, I'm a big fan of the inflatables in space thing because if they can be proven to work, and like Beam is a great example where Beam is just 
doing great at the ISS. So like it was supposed to be taken off and they're like, no, we're going to keep it. <laughs> it's working great. That uh, gives us more data about long-term how inflatables survive in space. And it's so much easier to make large spaces for astronauts in space if you bring them up folded and then unfold them. So pretty cool. Another company getting into the inflatable business. I did chuckle at their renderings on the Zars Technica post and like i don't know the fourth or fifth one in is like a cutaway and you can see people three astronauts floating around in a multi-story ikea apartment going around the yeah. moon yeah it's a little flat pack apartment because mm-hmm. i mean look if your space module is going to be flat packed the furniture in it's obviously going to be flat right. packed too so yeah, it's just all all together there you get you get there <laughs> you blow it up and then the first astronaut, astronauts go in and they they're handed a hex wrench mm-hmm. and uh they begin assembling yep. good luck team yeah, but it's it's cool. Yeah, the idea that this thing would have, I mean, in this in this little illustration with the IKEA furniture, it's like uh, three levels with a couple of rooms on each level. Like it's spacious for for outer space. That is that is a lot of uh, habitable real estate. It's uh, pretty cool. I like it. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's super interesting, and I really think like you do these these types of spacecraft have a future. For all the reasons you said, right, to build something, what do you say, it was a third of the volume of the International Space Station? Yeah. That took how many shuttle missions to build? And this, you could put atop uh-huh. a single rocket. And yeah. it's like, it's it's great. It's expandable. That's, and you have yeah. you have a spacious space apartment. And if you're, span, if you're spending time, in whether it's low Earth orbit or lunar orbit or on the way to Mars, you've got people and a long time. You want to give them space if you can. So... That's really great. Um, okay, are you ready for our new trial segment? Does it have a song? Maybe. Okay. We'll see what happens. It has an intro. Okay. And maybe some sound effects. You tell me. In the justice system, there are two separate yet equally important groups. People on Earth and people in space. These are their stories. It's time, Stephen, for space law. And space order? I don't know. Space law. Space, space law is the name of this segment. Okay. Space law. I am space law. very curious where you're going with this. Okay. So first off, I want to remind people of uh, a space mystery that we've covered in the past, which is the Soyuz spacecraft at the International Space Station that had a leak, mm-hmm. a hole that may have been caused by a human and might even have been sabotage. This is an example of like, you've got a mystery and possibly a crime. And it's in space. What do you do? Well, this came up again this week because there is an astronaut, Anne McLean, who is on the International Space Station. She isn't anymore. But uh, she is going through, apparently, a messy divorce. And her wife uh, has accused her of illegally accessing her bank account while in space on the International Space Station. Oh, no. Now, I was unclear on exactly what kind of internet access they have from the ISS. I had read at some point that everything was, like, moderated. Like, you had to, like, pass things down and then somebody would post them on the internet for you. But it sounds like maybe... I, I mean, I'm sure, like, you're not... No Netflix. But uh, <laughs> but I like the idea that they they can get a web browser up there and do stuff like this. But in this case, this is a uh, this is a big issue. You know, Anne McLean says that it was a routine thing that that uh, she would do to make sure that there was enough money in the bank account to take care of the of their kids, and uh, that this is all overblown and it's a symptom of a contentious uh, divorce, and that uh, and and it's going to work its way through. Uh, court and be handled and because it's all americans and she's an american astronaut on the american module of the international space station it's fine but it does bring up the larger question of what happens when crimes are committed in space and we wrote this little segment uh and a minute before we started recording this podcast lauren grush at the verge posted a whole story about what the international law and the legal framework for space crime is. And her point, and it's a great story, and you should read it, and and Lauren's point is that there are clear areas where it's just, it's Americans uh, and American spacecraft, and it's not a problem. Then it starts to get messy, though, if you had a space hotel that was launched by America and a Japanese space tourist who came up from Japan and, you know, another space tourist that came from Kazakhstan or Russia that... Um, 
and then there was a crime committed. This is starting to sound like like a uh, really interesting, weird Agatha Christie mystery, <laughs> the murderer in the space hotel. Um, the question is, who has jurisdiction legally for a crime that's committed in outer space? And there, there are... There are some laws about this uh, that are based on sometimes a 50-year-old treaty. Um, it's a little bit messy. And the point is that we need to start thinking about this stuff because as people go into space, so too will disputes. And they need to be solved in some form of space law. Space law. Funk, funk. I have some real-time follow-up about yes. ISS internet connection. Oh, yes. Please tell me. When I said I had a lot of articles saved for this episode that didn't make it, this was one of them. Earlier in August, NASA announced that they had uh, doubled the bandwidth to the station. It is now 600 megabits per second, which is uh, faster than what a lot of people have in their homes, including me. Sure. And, uh, of course, it's used for lots of things, right? It's not just browsing. Yeah, they're streaming, they're streaming back. Is this just the personal connection or is this the whole connection? Because they have to stream back like HD video from yes. the, their cameras and all that stuff. I believe it is everything. So yeah. I don't, you know, maybe a section of this is, is firewalled off for Netflix use. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> it is pretty quick. And this article, up the article in the show, it's talking about how they did it. And a lot of it is with the idea towards additional research and science at the station as maybe private entities come aboard to do things that this will be only more important. They talk about how they do it with uh, satellites and the space network. Pretty interesting stuff. So it is uh, nice and speedy aboard the International Space Station. All right. It's good to know. They've got that uh, direct access. All right. I have one last uh, space law item, which is moon littering. Don't litter on the moon. Okay. Um, and this is the Bereshit lander from Israel that was uh, that didn't land; it crash landed. Um, there was a like archive on board that somebody had put on that included, it turns out, a bunch of tardigrades, which are living creatures. They were dried out. These are these strange microscopic things. They're, they're often called water bears. They can be completely dried out. And then dried for a long time, and then you give them water, and they they basically uh, revive, which is a, a it's a miraculous thing. They're renowned for their resilience and the ability to rehydrate. Um, and they were in this uh, archive that smashed along with the module, so it's possible that tardigrades, little living creatures, got spewed out all over the lunar surface, which is not great since you're not supposed to. You're supposed to be careful about contamination mm-hmm. in outer space of uh, of living stuff. Now, the science of this is, you know, suggests that given the radiation on the surface of the of the moon, that the DNA is going to be degraded and that they're not going to be able to, even if, and there's no water, so if, on the surface anyway, so they're probably not going to be able to reform and, and it's not going to be like there are life forms on the moon that we've seeded there. It's, it's, it's unlikely, but you never know. They are hardy guys and maybe one of them just got blown so far and and he landed in one of those craters that's got ice and who knows, maybe there's a tardigrade party happening on the moon, but probably not. Um, the bigger issue uh, that is uh, in the space law category is how do these things get certified for launch? And it seems, uh, and uh, there's a tweet that I'll link to, um, that going through like the documentation for this launch, because it launched on an American rocket, that uh, Space IL, who is in charge of Bereshit, was uh, basically saying they would notify if there were changes to what was on board. And I think it's unclear now about exactly what happened, because it sounds like maybe nobody at uh, the American side of it knew that they were going to, that this group was trying to put uh, tardigrades on because it was a group. It was not Space IL. It was somebody who was contributing this archive of like uh, human culture and stuff to uh, ride along and land on the moon. And they could say, "Look, that archive is out up there on the moon." Um, anyway, it's it's a complicated issue. But I, again, I think this is interesting as space law, just because there's a question of you know. So there are rules about what you take it to outer space and what you would leave and then there are also the guidelines for like saying what you're carrying and something broke down here where somebody either like lied or chose not to pass on the information that there was a big ball of tardigrades that were going to get 
smashed all over the moon if Bereshit didn't make it, which it didn't. So it's just another question about uh, space law, and there's going to be more. So maybe this segment will come back, or maybe it won't. But there you go. I have two space law items for today. I think you're right. This is only going to become an increasingly complicated issue. You know, astronauts in the past worked for a government on government property. And the second we have space tourism or space hotels or something else, it... (laughs) Within what? So I think you're right. I think this is. Uh, I think this segment has legs. Is what I'm saying. Not unlike the little bears that are having a party on the moon. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Space IL is a private company in mm-hmm. in Israel. It's not the Israeli government even. Right. So, you know, and then there's another private company that put the thing on their ship, which was then launched by. I'm not sure. I think that was probably launched by a private company as well. But in America, like it's a whole, and they have to get FAA approval, and there's a whole process there. So. Um, we, we're not going to turn this into a space law podcast, but maybe from time to time we will bring up novel issues in space law. Well, I think that does it. I think so. That was packed. It was a packed episode, but we had um, gone a long time without talking about what's going on out there, and there's a lot going there on. There is. If you want to catch up on what we spoke about, links are all in the show notes, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 106. While you're there, you can do several things. Uh, you can become a member to support this show. There's uh, some links there in the sidebar. There's also links to send us an email with feedback or follow-up or check out our space Tumblr where we post links to stories in between episodes. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. Jason is Snell. You can find me there as ISMH. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.